Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the irony of Senator Mitch McConnell accusing the Democrats of giving tax breaks to the rich, which is actually happening with the so-called SALT, state and local tax deduction limit of $10,000 being raised in the Build Back Better bill since the Republicans enacted it to punish wealthy donors to Democrats in coastal blue states. Joining us to discuss how the Democrats have mishandled tax issues is Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California, the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. He joins us to discuss how billionaires who have doubled their collective net worth to more than $5 trillion in just five years are largely unscathed thanks to protection from Senator Sinema and the House Ways and Means Chairman, Neil. Then we'll go to Berlin to speak with Georg Dietz, a journalist and columnist who has written for Der Spiegel, Die Zeit, Frankfurter Allgemeine, and Süddeutsche Zeitung, among others. He's currently the editor-in-chief at the New Institute and the co-author, most recently, of Power to the People, How We Use Technology to Reinvent Democracy, and we will discuss the worsening COVID pandemic in Europe with violent anti-vaxxer demonstrations in Belgium and the Netherlands and a nationwide lockdown in Austria with mandatory vaccination required by February the 1st. Then finally, with the financial markets in Moscow plunging today on fears that war may break out between Russia and Ukraine, we will speak with Samuel Sharap a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation whose research interests include the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states, U.S.-Russia deterrence, strategic stability, and arms control. Previously, he served at the United States State Department as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and on the Secretary's policy planning staff covering Russia and Eurasia. He's the co-author of Everyone Loses, the Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia, and he joins us to discuss his op-ed at Politico, The U.S. Approach to Ukraine's Border War Isn't Working. Here's what Biden should do instead. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He is the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of The People's Tax Page. Welcome to Background Briefing, Edward McCaffrey. Oh, it's great to be here, Ian, even if we're talking about death and taxes again. <laughs> well, let's hope we're not talking about the death of the Democratic Party, because it's not looking good in terms of of this state and local tax initiative. 
we know that the Republicans punished uh, the blue state donors to the Democrats by limiting the deductions of state and local taxes to $10,000. And many of the so-called centrist Democrats have tried to get it back into the Build Back Better package. It looks like it's back in. So when you have a a so-called social infrastructure package that is desperately looking for revenues to actually go in the opposite direction is a bit counterintuitive. And now you've got Senator Mitch McConnell sort of making fun of the Democrats, trolling them by saying that the Democrats' obsession with this so-called salt cap, even as our colleagues draft the biggest tax hikes in half a century, they cannot resist the concept of special tax cuts for high earners in blue states. So is this beyond hypocrisy? Is this really going to hurt the Democrats in the long run, giving tax breaks to wealthy Democratic donors? Oh, oh, I think 100% it has, uh, Ian. And, and I think it's it's a continuation of a long-running theme. So back to our, our kind of glib death and taxes joke. I mean, I think it's that taxes will be the death of the Democratic Party. You know, that's, that's the linkage that Democrats have really had very poor tax policy for years. They're not really taxing the rich. They're as much beholden to Wall Street and hedge fund managers. I mean, this is sort of a a criticism of Clinton-style Democratic Party, but it's kind of an enduring thing. Uh, So now if you look at the current round, uh, we we go back to the presidential election and uh, Joe Biden's uh, frequent avowal of his desire to have everyone pay a fair share, to have the wealthy pay a fair share. We've had reporting that shows that the definition of fair share for Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos is zero. Um, and then the Democrats decide they are going to tax the rich. They roll out plans like Senator Wyden's uh, billionaire tax plan that are disastrous, that are not well understood, that are immediately pulled back. So we're not really taxing the rich. The Build Back Better plan is not $6 trillion. It's not $3.5 trillion. It's not anything yet. And it may drop all the way down to 1.5, uh, 1.5, 1.75 trillion. It's the incredibly shrinking Build Back Better plan. Uh, and as it shrunk, any commitment to meaning a little bit on the corporate side, but any commitment to meaningfully taxing the rich drops away. And then at the same time, Ian, and your question, the only thing off in your in your statement, Ian, was you said it's centrist Democrats. Centrist Democrats killed the the more ambitious billionaires' tax plans. This this salt issue is Democrats from high tax states. But to be fair, Ed, the reason that the Democrats weren't able to raise the revenues sufficient for remember it started out at a six trillion dollar Build Back Better, then it became three point five trillion. And now it's roughly around two, and you say it could even go down to one and a half. The reason that they couldn't get the revenues was largely because of Senator Kirsten Cinema, who absolutely refuses to raise taxes on the billionaires and on corporations and to repeal the Trump tax cuts. So they've had to resort to gimmicks. Isn't that the reason? Well, I, I think you always have to be careful in, in politics with seeing any one reason. So certainly 
the opposition of cinema and mansion. I mean, right from the beginning, Manchin's insistence that this be a balanced affair, that that the social spending, the expansion of the social safety net, the expansion of uh, Medicare and, and, and pre-K and uh, co- you know community college, all the good stuff that is in this, Manchin insisting that it had to be paid for with taxes. Well, that's not how the Republicans do business. When the Republicans use reconciliation, they add to the debt. The, the Trump tax cuts were not offset by revenues or spending cuts. So Republicans don't play that way. So right from the beginning, Manchin saying it had to be paid for, Cinema coming in late and saying no increase in taxes on, on individuals, no raising of rates. But the question, I think, Ian, is how many Democrats behind the scenes were really applauding that? I'm not sure the Democratic Party, you know, with its bare majority in the House and its tie, it's 50 with the independents, uh, it's 50 in the Senate. They're just not in a position to do anything bold and sweeping. And I'm not sure the country has the appetite to do anything bold and sweeping. So they vastly overpromised at the six trillion. Uh, and now they're maybe under delivering at the one point five trillion. But one one suggestion that it's not just mansion and cinema when Wyden rolled out his billionaire's tax plan and it literally had a day. It, it had a day in, in the press and in the sunshine. Nancy Pelosi was one of the first people to come down on it, uh, as well as others. Uh, Richard Neal in the House, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, didn't like the idea. Pelosi said it wouldn't really raise that much money. So I think there are a lot of Democrats who are afraid of what will happen in 2022 if they get characterized as tax increasers. And yet they kind of bubbled and stumbled their way into looking like they're tax increasers, even if they pulled back the tax increases at the end of the day because they didn't have the votes. And arguably, they should have known that from the beginning. Arguably, they never should have been setting Kamala Harris up to ride in on a horse and give the thumbs up to a massive tax increase. That would have been the death knell for her presidential ambitions. So hard to raise taxes, hard to raise taxes in good times, hard to raise taxes in bad times. Uh, And the Democrats have not really had a coherent tax policy that is attractive to the American people writ large. And again, I'm speaking with Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat, How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. Well, there are reports out now, Ed, that Senator Kirsten Sinema threatened the White House that she would tank the Build Back Better social infrastructure bill if they didn't pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill which the Democrats in the House sat on for three months. Now, three months went by, and they're back to this, you know, status quo ante where they've passed the bill, but now we don't know what's going to happen with the Build Back Better bill. But those wasted three months were critical. For example, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the possibility of passing that's expired. 
So there are real existential challenges out there for the Democratic Party because of the massive voter suppression, gerrymandering, attacks on neutral poll workers across the board and the changes happening in Republican legislatures to allow them to count and certify the vote and change it if they don't like the results. All this is happening now and the dithering that's gone on on the infrastructure bill seems to have been at the expense of dealing with these existential challenges. How does it strike you? So it, it strikes me as very much that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting older, as maybe some of your other listeners are, and I'm finding it a very depressing time. And it, it may be that the Biden presidency goes down as the last attempt at a bipartisan uh, approach to government, and it just has not worked. So uh, I think there was a sense of coming when 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 Biden comes into the presidency, he's inheriting a mess. The world's a fire. You've got COVID raging and all the the chaos and turbulence of the Trump era. And it seemed like there was a mandate to do big things. But whether it's through democratic ineptitude or the country is just not ready uh, for moderate, bipartisan, sensible approach. So I think the Democrats miscalculated their capital. They thought the country had, had swung farther to the left than it had. They rolled out ambitious financial plans, which scared everybody that they would be you know, triggering inflation. They're going to get blamed for inflation and they're triggering tax increases, even if they're backing down from that. And then as they're squandering their political capital with an overplay on the economic uh, you know, reforms, they, they don't move on the voting reform and they don't they don't change the rules to the filibuster. So it, it should have been a clear, you know, you get uh, Republicans would be changing the filibuster. Republicans have changed the filibuster. Republicans changed it to the 51 votes, which had given us all these conservative Supreme Court justices. So so the Republicans have played with the filibuster. Democrats aren't playing with the filibuster. Maybe Manchin standing in the way of the filibuster. But you you tried to squeeze Manchin and Cinema on the financial economic side and they won. They held their ground for a smaller package and they won and now they're not feeling any pressure. You don't have any leverage over Joe Manchin. So you've ended up by, by being overly ambitious on the economic side and being overly ambitious on the tax side and not having a sensible tax policy to roll out. So now you're in retreat. You don't have the money. Your plans are shrinking and you don't have the political power to adjust the filibuster for the voting reform. So I think it's all, you know, we got a bunch of roads and bridges from the, the infrastructure bill, which we could have gotten under Trump if Trump were at all competent. That, that, that's a bill that, you know, got a lot of Republican support in the Senate. It's not a revolutionary bill, the, the, the bricks and mortars part of this. Uh, and then we gave a, bu- a bunch of people checks to, to get out of COVID and that looks like it's spurring inflation and, you know, setting the stage for Republican recapture of power in 2022 and maybe 2024. So it would be nicer to be optimistic heading into Thanksgiving, 
But it seems like Democrats mismanaging the tax issue, getting the tax issue wrong, and now they're on defense on a lot of fronts. Well, the other study that I wanted to bring up comes from Bloomberg, Ed, where the Trump state tax giveaway to the rich has resulted in a 50% drop in IRS revenues, hardly a surprise. Meanwhile, billionaires have doubled their collective net worth by more than $5 trillion in just five years. So that, that's the stark reality. The SALT taxes we talked about earlier, they're millionaire taxes. We're talking about the billionaires here. They're, they are making out like bandits. And are they untouchable? It seems they're looking like they're untouchable, and I think that's the right way to think about it. And that's where we have a bipartisan game. So simply put, America taxes work, but not wealth. So if you own assets and those assets go up in value, you don't have to pay tax on the change in value. So that's what the really rich people do. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, uh, Warren Buffett, their wealth is in the form of non-dividend paying stock that goes up and up and up. They don't get paid salaries. They don't pay payroll taxes. They don't pay any income taxes. And you're exactly right that these, uh, you know, now we're putting on a millionaire's surcharge. We're raising the tax rates on people who report more than $10 million. That's like 10 people. Uh, those are some artists and athletes, and I don't know when you're getting paid in public radio, Ian. But the, <laughs> but there's some there's yeah, some high don't even go people there, that Ed. are making ten million. <laughs> the truly rich are like you. You don't get a child credit. You're not entitled to a child credit if you make more than like four hundred thousand dollars. So lots of our listeners, lots of your listeners, don't get a child credit. Jeff Bezos does. Jeff Bezos qualifies for the child credit because he makes so little income. So the system is in shambles, but that's a bipartisan thing. That goes back to the tax policy of uh, FDR and JFK and and Biden-Obama. Biden-Obama greatly weakened the gift and estate tax, so they cut its revenues in half. And then the Trump Act did it again. Billionaires win from both Democrats and Republicans, and that's what it looks like when a Democrat, you know, chair of the Senate Finance Committee rolls out a billionaire's tax plan, and it it's dead. It's dead on arrival. It's beginning to look like the billionaires are untouchable. People listen to Elon Musk more than they're listening to Joe Biden, and that's just a scary world. So when you talk about the House chair of Ways and Means, Richie Neal, he apparently doesn't want to raise taxes. He's being challenged, of course, by progressives. And you mentioned earlier, just just in the last couple of minutes here, I want to get your take on the idea that maybe Biden will be the last of the bipartisan presidents. So do you see that then becoming more polarized politically? Yeah, I, I think it is polarized now, obviously. And, and there's this hope that there's a, a moderate middle. And if you ap- uh, appeal to the moderate middle, everything is fine. Um, but I don't think that's the way it looks. It, 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 it looks like uh, you, you've got one party with that 40, 42 percent who are unified, who are focused, who move in lockstep, 
uh, the country can be controlled by a 42% minority that's unified and moves in lockstep and has advantages through the Electoral College. And I think what Democrats sooner or later have to realize that you're, you're not, by, by trying to be bipartisan, you're, you're only alienating and de-enthusing your, your progressive flank. And those people in the middle, those suburban voters, are as likely to vote Republican as Democrat if, for example, they think their taxes are going to go up. So that's this. I think that's the story of American politics for a long time. Democrats have gotten the tax issue wrong. The tax issue matters to suburban voters, and they're willing to vote for Republicans who are more conservative than they on a wide range of issues because they don't want their taxes to go up. And here we have Democrats looking like they're tax increasers, even when they're sort of not. You've got McConnell saying it's the largest tax increase in history, which maybe just by numbers it is because of the corporate tax. But at the same time, it's a giveaway to the rich. You're not breaking the power of billionaires and you're, you're really kind of not getting anything done. So uh, it, it just seems like that, that hoping for some Republican support, hoping for the, the swing independent voters to act reasonably, you know, that, that's just, that seems like it's not the way it's going. It's getting more and more polarized and eventually the democratic party has to, has to act like a poll instead of something that's trying to craft a consensus. Well, Edward McCaffrey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always my pleasure, Ian. And I say, even even if we're talking about depressing things, we'll, we'll keep talking and and hope for better times ahead. And happy Thanksgiving to you and all. Happy your Thanksgiving listeners. to you, Ed, and and I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Edward McCaffrey, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law and a Professor of Law, Economics, and Political Science at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Fair Not Flat: How to Make the Tax System Better and Simpler, and the founder of the People's Tax Page. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Berlin to look into the violent anti-vaxxer demonstrations in Belgium and the Netherlands and a nationwide lockdown in Austria with mandatory vaccination required by February the 1st. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Berlin is Georg Dietz, who is a Berlin-based journalist and columnist who has written for Der Spiegel, Die Zeit, Frankfurt Eigeneiner, and Süddeutsche Zeitung, among others. He's currently the editor-in-chief at the New Institute and the co-author, most recently, of Power to the People, How We Use Technology to Reinvent Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Georg Dietz. My pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a, obviously a huge uptick in COVID infections in Europe, and it's resulted in a lot of demonstrations, particularly quite violent ones in Belgium and in the Netherlands and across Europe itself, where in Germany, 
Angela Merkel says that we are in a highly dramatic situation. What is in place now is not sufficient. And the German health minister uh, has warned Germans that you either get jabbed, recovered, or dead. So that's pretty stark, is it not? It's pretty stark, and I think it is especially stark coming from a minister who's basically responsible for not handling this pandemic. I guess what people outside you wonder is the degree of chaos and failure that's apparent in the way that Europe is handling the pandemic. And it's also actually what citizens in Germany or other European countries ask themselves, how do we end up in this space? Well, we had possibly the worst politician in history running this country or running it into the ground for the last four years who was manifestly responsible for the bungling of COVID here, which has created almost, what, 770,000 deaths. And yet, (laughs) believe it or not, he's making a comeback. He's the head of the Republican Party or the leader of the Republican Party as we speak and and might well, through voter suppression, etc., end up becoming the next president. So here in the United States, nobody's ever compared European leaders to Donald Trump. But that's not what you're saying, right? They're a different kind of incompetence. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I think it's interesting to take apart the politicians that I talk about and the politicians that you talk about. And I guess in some way the word populism, which I don't really like, is in the context because I am. what I think is apparent is that it is in Europe a failure of craftsmanship that led to this disaster and is creating... A wave of populist or violent resentment that we can talk about how to sort of understand that. And in the US, it's the other way around. So you have this populist who is in government and then creates through incompetence, in a way, apparently some coherence, which which is in his supporters. So it's a really, frankly, really, really weird moment in, in politics to try to understand the very, very different forces at play here. And for Europe, I think it's important to understand that this continent has been living through a decade of really kind of a dissociation of allegiance or, or coherence among the nation states. And the promise of a coherent approach to COVID was dead on the first day of pandemic, more or less. So the, we saw a massive return of national interest, national politics, borders were reinstated in a quite rational way. I think what we saw in Europe was, again, very different from irrationality in the Trumpian sense, was the rhetoric of emergency that masked really cluelessness. And that created, I think, the sense that nobody's in charge. There's a sense of irrationality about the German health minister that you, that you just mentioned, who said in March 2020 that masks apparently aren't really um, helping in the pandemic, which turned out to sort of be the reason for that, that the the government couldn't produce them or or get them to the stores fast enough. So you have, in a way, also through digital media, a quite transparent sense of failure in traditional liberal elites, which led to a massive problem of legitimacy, I would say, of, of the system. And that's where the violence sort of comes in. And that's where the center says, well, look at the barbarians at the gate trying to deflect their own failure. 
So really for a bit of an engaged observer slash trying to be objective observer, it's failure on, not on both sides, but there is clearly a failure in how politics is done. And then there is this violent reaction against that, which I can't, I wouldn't say it's understandable, but it's also not that it doesn't come as a total surprise. Well, the Dutch prime minister referred to the anti-vaccine demonstrations in the Netherlands as idiots. I'm not sure that that's particularly helpful. But in terms of the populism that you just referred to, Georg, Austria on Monday is the first country in Western Europe to reimpose a lockdown since the vaccines were started. And starting on February the 1st, uh, if you're not vaccinated in Austria, I mean, you have to be vaccinated. It's compulsory to get vaccinated as of February the 1st. And the reason why there's, what, 40% of Austrians, no, one-third of the country is not vaccinated has a lot to do with the populist rhetoric and uh, encouragement from the far-right Freedom Party. Definitely, yeah. But I think um, it wouldn't be so successful if it wouldn't be for deeper grievances. Again, I'm not saying I understand the opposition to vaccination. I really don't. It's just a sign that people look for something to be in opposition and sometimes in violent opposition to a government or a country or a form of governance that is not delivering for them. And I, I think you need to understand also in some way that there are these existential tensions in countries. I mean, the, the same is true for the US, of course, that the inequalities were exacerbated in the time of uh, pandemic. People of color were massively more affected. The poor were massively more affected, but also the rich got much richer. So you have a very, very high tension society that leaves a lot of people afraid of their livelihood, if not of their life, apparently, because otherwise they would get vaccinated. But trying to voice deep, deep anger that is really sort of reduced to the pandemic, but it's, the, the, the grievance is much larger. And I think the frustration runs much deeper. And I read an interesting thread actually from... Austria today, comparing this pandemic to the smallpox pandemic in uh, Vienna, or I think mostly Vienna in 1907. And the the main rhetoric there, the main voice of of opposition then was Richard Luger, the then voice of fascism. So of course, it, it is an energy that creates these populist support structures and violent opposition. But it's, as, as you mentioned, the, the Dutch prime minister, it's, I wouldn't say dangerous, it's just stupid of a politician like the Dutch prime minister to call demonstrators uh, idiots, because that only reinforces their sense of purpose, that the, the, they are the outcasts and they, they are the force of opposition against the, a system that they violently oppose. So in Germany, though, a lot of the uptick in the cases, obviously, is to do with the Delta variant are in the states bordering Austria and the Czech Republic. So you're getting spillover, right, from Austria and from the Czech Republic. Of course. I mean, that's also one of the problems in dealing with the pandemic in Europe is that you have a lot of small countries with a lot of different approaches to the pandemic. And there is a cultural divide in Europe that's now, again, more apparent that Western Europe, uh, France, Spain, Portugal, even to some extent Italy is dealing with the pandemic now apparently better than 
certain parts of Eastern Europe. And that might go back in some way to a more authoritarian or narrow-minded or particularistic uh, approach to identity and government than in the West, which is more attuned to rationality and <laughs> science as such. So you have these fault lines in Europe that come to the fore that had, have been um, not so evident than before. And then so you have this, this mosaic of countries that each country is, is struggling with its own set of failures and policies. But I think the uniting factor is that the governments just stumble from lockdown to lockdown. And, and after each lockdown, they just pretend and hope that everything will be okay. And then politicians, so in Germany, acting high-ranking politicians say, well, actually, until three weeks ago, no epidemiologist would have predicted that, which is just a flat lie. And just masking their own inability to anticipate what was coming. And these kind of statements, I think, are really, really hurting the sense of, again, legitimacy in, in, that's associated with the system. Quite dangerous, actually, in some way. Right. Well, there is a, obviously a difference between the East and the West in terms of, well, I don't know whether you're implying, Georg, that having these more authoritarian histories, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, for example, are banning unvaccinated people from entering you know, restaurants and pubs as of uh, today. And then you've got the breakdown of the healthcare systems in Bulgaria and Romania, where um, hospitals are overrun. So people seem to be worse off in the East than they are in the West. Is that is that right? Well, of course, it's a combination of all kinds of different systems. It's a general economic infrastructural problem in these countries that they're not as well equipped with, with hospitals, infrastructures, doctors, that there was a massive exodus of doctors, nurses, and all kinds of qualified personnel to the West in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And this has created, um, or since the fall of the Iron Curtain, the wall in, in 89, 90. So this has created tension in these countries anyway, and the economic success wasn't equally distributed. So these countries have, have a certain tension anyway in, in socioeconomic factors. And then I guess you can add a certain liberal tradition in these countries that you see is very strongly in Portugal and in, in, in Poland and in Hungary and in Slovakia to some extent. And, and that has that creates a, a very powerful mix for COVID resistance, but also as you mentioned, so very Western countries like the Netherlands have these problems. So I think it points to a larger failure in European way of governing through the pandemic and in the way I think the democracies have changed under the pressures of the market also in the last 10 to 15 years after the financial crisis and especially during the pandemic where again middle class people have felt the pressure and the cheap money has made a lot of people of wealth much much wealthier and that's not something that's disconnected from these protests in the sense that the protesters are living in these societies that are they are aware of these sort of constraints, tensions, changes in society. Even middle class people here in Berlin feel the very apparent changes in, in the way that the city works in terms of who owns 
parts of the city and who is able to access parts of the city and who's getting pushed to the side. So I think the pandemic is really one way of, of voicing massive discontent with the system, one way. Well, Georg Dietz, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Georg Dietz, who is a Berlin-based journalist and columnist who has written for Der Spiegel, Die Zeit, Frankfurter Allgemeine, and Süddeutsche Zeitung, among others. And he's currently the editor-in-chief at the New Institute and the co-author, most recently, of Power to the People, How We Use Technology to Reinvent Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into fears that a war may break out between Ukraine and Russia at any time and that the U.S. approach to Ukraine's border war isn't working. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Samuel Charup, who's a senior political analyst at the RAND Corporation, whose research interests include the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states, European and Eurasian regional security, and U.S.-Russia deterrence, strategic stability, and arms control. Previously, he was a senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and served at the United States Department of State as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and on the Secretary's policy planning staff covering Russia and Eurasia. He's the co-author of Everyone Loses, the Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for U.S.-Soviet Eurasia. And he has an op-ed at Politico, The U.S. Approach to Ukraine's Border War Isn't Working. Here's what Biden should do instead. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Sharap. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it feels in many ways that we could be blundering into a war, at least a war, not that the U.S. is nationally involved, but with Russia massing troops on Ukraine's border on the east as well as in Crimea, Putin seems to be sending signals that the U.S. and NATO are not taking him seriously. They're not taking his red lines seriously. And it sort of concerns me because we seem to always have an inability to understand the perceptions of the other side, how they see things. We tend to be somewhat self-righteous about our own positions. I recall, for example, in 1983, there was a war scare because our side didn't understand the paranoia with these geriatrics in the Kremlin on kidney dialysis machines who took Reagan's words literally when he said that the Soviet Union would end up on the ash heap of history. And when Cap Weinberger talked about nuclear decapitation, they took that quite personally. So not that we're being aggressive at the moment, but we didn't understand what the thinking was in Moscow. It almost resulted in a nuclear war back in 1983. This seems like there could be a real war breakout and diplomacy is urgently needed. But from your article at Politico, Samuel, I don't get the impression that the White House is sufficiently alarmed. 
Well, I think that from what I understand, at least, that people are quite animated about the current situation. And, and there is a degree of alarm in official Washington um, and an understanding that this is a very grave situation. Um, we've seen signs of that in this trip of the CIA director, the former ambassador to Moscow, Bill Burns, to Russia last month, um, where he had a meetings with counterparts and also um, a video conference with Putin himself. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, had a phone call with his counterpart this week. So I think that there are signs that, that, that in fact, that people are alarmed and that they are taking it seriously. I think the question is what to do about it. And there, you know, there seem to be different camps, both maybe within the administration, but more broadly in the U.S. foreign policy discussion. Uh, And at the moment, the camp of sort of this gets resolved by demonstrating U.S. support for Ukraine and threatening consequences for further Russian aggression is sort of winning the day. And my concern is that that approach is uh, not going to work. I think if it if I if I were more confident that it would, I would be less concerned about the way things are going. But, you know, for for Moscow, there really just isn't a more important foreign policy priority. Like, you know, Ukraine is sort of second to national survival in their list of foreign policy priorities. And they're willing to pay an extremely high price to pursue their objectives there. So. If, in fact, what we are seeing along the Russia-Ukraine border and in terms of the uh, heated rhetoric coming from Moscow is indicative that they're preparing for something big militarily, you know, we're not prepared to go to the lengths it would take to stop them. And in light of those circumstances, if we want to prevent the war, the argument I make in the piece in Politico is that we need to think about some sort of diplomatic compromise to preempt it. And the diplomatic compromise that you're arguing for on your Politico piece, Simon Sharp, is for Ukraine to start adhering to the Minsk II agreement that they signed in 2015, although, as you point out, was imposed on Ukraine by through the barrel of a Russian gun. So what exactly would that mean? Would, would they basically give up the Donbass? And uh, to my mind, that wouldn't be... A huge loss because it's kind of the Rust Belt, isn't it? It's, it'll be a, a ward of the Russian state. Or is there something more complicated in this Minsk II agreement that would suggest that Ukraine is basically getting a bad deal imposed on it? So the agreement, which was signed in February 2015, brokered by the French and the Germans, Basically, what you know came after the Russians using their regular military, which they've used quite sparingly in this conflict, mostly putting you know local locals in the in the Ukrainian Donbas on the front line, um, sort of recruiting a proxy force. Uh, but they they intervened directly in in January, February 2015, and really inflicted some serious pain on the Ukrainian military that forced the Ukrainian political leadership at the time to make some significant concessions. And the deal, although it has a lot of particulars relating to the situation on the ground in the Donbass, is essentially that Russia gives up control over the border, um, which, you know, it essentially now has, and withdraws in return for Ukraine granting a constitutionally guaranteed 
lever of influence to Russia via a sort of devolution of power to these rebel-held areas. So Russia is more or less using the Donbas conflict to institutionalize its influence over Ukraine. And this happened, of course, this came in the course of the aftermath of the Maidan revolution in February 2014, which had brought to power a very pro-Western and sort of anti-Russian government that that event, of course, sparked the annexation of Crimea and then the uh, insurgency in the Donbass, which Russia ended up supporting. So the, the bottom line here is that Russia actually wants to reinsert the Donbass into Ukraine as its own sort of proxy political actor so as to exercise some degree of political control over Ukraine's future. So, you know, the details of the agreement concern everything from local elections in these rebel-held areas to, like, who controls the police force um, in this post-reintegration future to the nature of Ukraine's future constitutional order. But the big picture is that Russia was basically going to give Ukraine a modicum of peace in return for getting what it wanted essentially by political means as opposed to continuing to inflict punishments on the battlefield. And of course, this was a, you know, not a favorable deal for Ukraine. They had just essentially lost a war or lost a significant battle in the war. And ever since they signed it, they've been resisting implementing it. Uh, Understandably, given that it's not something that they they would volunteer to do in, in, in any way. But And Russia has sort of not pushed the envelope since February 2015. There haven't been the kind of escalations that led to the original Minsk II uh, since then. My view is that they've sort of had a degree of confidence about the way things are going and that eventually the Ukrainians will relent. They seem to have changed their mind on that in the last six to nine months, and there have been some some messaging surrounding that. And so now they appear to be prepared to up the ante again to get the deal that they got on paper implemented in practice. So I'm not making any bones about the fact that it's not a particularly advantageous arrangement for Ukraine. It is, however, something that they signed up for and uh, actually is part of a UN Security Council resolution. So in, in theory, it's actually international law. But putting all that to the side, the consequences of a military escalation will be in effect in my view, a Minsk three, so to speak, which will be even more even more unfavorable to Ukraine. So we have a choice between potentially some unsavory unsavory compromises up front that avoids a calamitous conflict or a calamitous conflict and you know perhaps even less advantageous terms on the back end. And again, I'm speaking with Samuel Charab, who's a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, whose research interests include the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states, European and Eurasian regional security, and U.S.-Russia deterrence, strategic stability, and arms control. Previously, he was a senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and served at the United States Department of State as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and on the Secretary's policy planning staff covering Russia and Eurasia. He's the author of Everyone Loses, the Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. And he has an op-ed at Politico, The U.S. Approach to Ukraine's Border War Isn't Working. Here's what Biden should do instead. Now, the British have uh, sent in, I think, 600 special forces into Ukraine. The U.S. has about 400 in the western Ukraine. But the last time there was an escalation of Russian forces 
on the Ukrainian border, Russia went into full nuclear alert at the highest level. And, I mean, that's the dangerous subtext here. I mentioned, uh, you know, the 1983 war scare. I mean, that's the last thing you want. So you're suggesting, I think, Samuel, that it's better to swallow the bitter pill of Minsk too than have the superpowers uh, or Russia and the United States on the brink of nuclear war. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not quite, so the, the stakes aren't quite, so the war scare was involved, first of all, involved um, fears about a first strike, which are, you know, inherently much more escalatory here. Although there are trainers on the ground, U.S. and British, you mentioned, I'm sure there are other NATO countries with uniform personnel on the ground in Ukraine at the Ukrainian's invitation. The, the bottom line here is that actually, I've seen no sign that the U.S. or its allies will militarily get involved if Russia intervenes. And if we want any, I mean, evidence to, to support that, we just look to the previous times that Russia intervened militarily. Arguably, it's been doing so continuously for seven years, and there hasn't been any decision to directly engage Russia on the score. I just think that there's a, a degree to which the rhetoric doesn't match the reality of our commitments, which are uh, Ukraine is a partner. We are assisting Ukraine. That's all uh, well and good. But when it comes down to it, I don't think we should fool them or ourselves about the uh, extent to which we are prepared to go to defend them. And you know, that is just a stark reality that is that is perhaps unpleasant, but um, it's something we need to be uh, honest about, both in public and in private. And so I certainly would, you know, if I believed that there was a that there was a scenario for a coercive approach that is trying to force Russia to back down, that that would do the trick, I would be the first to support it. But I just don't see the will there to pursue that kind of a policy. And, you know, understandably so, like we don't have security guarantees, the U.S. that is vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine. Um, it's not a member of NATO. And, you know, while we would certainly react in other ways, be it through sanctions or other ways of sort of um, retaliating, it would not be to go in and try to, you know, get the Russians out using the U.S. military. That's I just don't think that's going to happen. So where it does get so the ukrainians will be the victims here i think that's the that's the sad reality of it and what does get problematic is the what happens next you know ukraine does border several u.s treaty allies and it borders russian allies belarus um so uh and in the west slovakia poland hungary romania so all of which are are members of nato so if things really spiral out of control, you could see a sort of the way these spirals work. It's not necessarily that either side wanted to go to war. It's just that, you know, they took defensive measures and then the other side reacted and so on and so forth. And you end up in a conflict without necessarily wanting one. So I, I don't think it's quite of the same immediate sort of nuclear escalation concerns as the, as the war scare in um, 83. But it does have the potential to escalate to that point, which is another reason why we should seek to avoid it. Right. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Samuel, in your article, you uh, quote a Russian official uh, who's unnamed uh, that if we get the Donbass, 
but lose Ukraine. That's unacceptable. My understanding is that you could make the case that Russia has already lost Ukraine in terms of public opinion, that the Ukrainians by and large hate the Russians. They never did in the past, but they do now. So certainly the war has transformed Ukrainian public opinion. What is interesting is that it hasn't completely turned, particularly the population in the southeast, against Russia. And the government in Kiev continues to take measures, be it on language or you know the politics of history, that alienate wide swaths of the southeast population. Not not everyone, and you know this is not a uniform population even throughout the country, but there's a sort of non-inclusive vision of Ukrainian identity that has been propagated and that I think you know leaves reservoirs of resentment. On top of that, there is the sort of economic challenges. Um, COVID has really hit Ukraine hard and the lack of popularity of the current president and his government, they're seen as sort of not having delivered on their promises, including of ending the war. So it's true that Russia would not. So, but in the big picture, though, you're right. If Russia has to resort to using force to getting what it wants in Ukraine, that's a sign that every other element of its power and influence has failed. Because, you know, for any state, Going to war with a country that you want to remain within your sort of orbit is not really a path that's a, you know winning hearts and minds. And I think it's a sign of the extent to which Russia's levers of influence in Ukraine have, you know, basically completely eroded besides this one. This one happens to be quite an effective lever if they're prepared to use it. That is the military tool. And, you know, it sort of gets to a, a sort of structural problem with Russia's demands and the mood, particularly of the Ukrainian political elite, which is obviously uh, become, you know, quite opposed, uh, you know, anti-Russian, I don't know if it's the right word, but um, it sees Russia as a threat uh, and, you know, sees the West as a potential savior. And so they're essentially, Russia's demands bump up against the lack of the desire of the Ukrainian elite to do their bidding for understandable reasons, you know, because Russia has been engaged now in like, well, first of all, it annexed and invaded an annexed part of Ukrainian territory and has been, you know, fighting a, a proxy war on another part for, you know, seven years now. So you can understand that the, that there's a not a, exactly a widespread reservoir of um, pro-Russian sentiment in Ukraine. But yeah, so I think that this is a problem. Um, but I, basically, you know, as far as I understand the way the, the Russians think about these things, is that they, they're not particularly concerned about hearts and minds, and they just want, you know, results. And that's a problem for their foreign policy, generally speaking. And ultimately, in my view, like their Ukraine policy has been catastrophic for Russian interests. I mean, if the country that is most important to your national security is desperately trying to escape your influence, and you have to fight a war to keep it within that you know, your orbit, uh, you're not, you're not doing everything, something right here. I mean, you're doing something wrong, I should say, as far as uh, foreign policy success and failure goes. But, you know, all that having been said, like, we're at the point where our choices and the Ukrainians' choices might be narrowing fast. And if it's a choice between a sort of bad peace or very much worse than that war, uh, I'll take the bad peace. And I think 
most Ukrainians would too. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Samuel Sharap. My pleasure. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Samuel Sharap, who's a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, whose research interests include the foreign policies of Russia and the former Soviet states, European and Eurasian regional security and U.S.-Russia deterrence, strategic stability and arms control. And previously, he was the senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and served at the United States Department of State as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff covering Russia and Eurasia. And he's the co-author of Everyone Loses, the Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia. And he has an op-ed at Politico, The U.S. Approach to Ukraine's Border War Isn't Working. Here's what Biden should do instead. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.